We are carrying on in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, the very beginning of Matthew 8. And just to give you some context, Jesus has just taught on the Sermon on the Mount, and now he is descending off of this mountain. And we're going to see what happens. So this is Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came down, came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out to his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus, who reveals you to us, who makes you known to us, who gives us access to you. And we thank you that you relate to us on the basis of his faithfulness and not our own. And so right now, we ask that you would speak to us. You'd give us ears to hear from you. And that you would do your good, perfect, and pleasing will in our lives. And we pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. The big idea this morning is that Jesus is bringing a comprehensive healing to the world. The healing of the leper is the kind of comprehensive healing Jesus wants all people to experience through him. Jesus just spent the last three chapters announcing the kingdom of God in Matthew 4, 5, 7. He's just been on this mountain, really like a mountaintop experience, where he's announcing that the kingdom of heaven has come near, and he's like, this is what it looks like. And he's painted this dynamic portrait of what it looks like, what it looks like to live in it, how people live in relation to God, to others, themselves, to the world. And so after announcing this kingdom has come, now Jesus will begin bringing it into people's lives. And the first person he encounters is someone on the complete margins of society. Jesus encounters this man with leprosy. Today, leprosy is commonly called by doctors Hansen's disease. It's a serious disease. It starts off small, a small bacteria that grows on your skin, discoloring your skin, making your skin flaky. And over time, it spreads and very slowly begins to damage the nerves in that area so that you actually lose feeling. You can't feel it anymore. And it's this loss of feeling on a foot or your hands that can lead to you severely injuring your hand or your foot and not even really noticing, not, not feeling it. And that's how people end up losing limbs. Not because they fall off, but because you don't feel that you've stepped on a nail, that you've cut your hand, that you've burned your hand, and the resulting complications from those injuries, or in worst cases, lead to amputation. Now, when the Bible, the biblical authors, when they talk about leprosy, they use it as a catch-all for numerous skin disease. It referred to more than just what we call Hansen's disease, including things like dermatosis, psoriasis, lupus, ringworm, and other suspicious uh, skin um, diseases. Now, the Old Testament it gave guidelines, specific guidelines, for how to examine and then how to treat 
these different diseases. Because many of them were considered at the time very, very contagious. And because people with leprosy were considered um, physically, socially, and even spiritually unclean, people avoided them. They were unclean before God, before their community, they, they had, and they were contagious. Other people could get what they had. And the guidelines that you can read about are found in Leviticus 13 and 14. People with leprosy were required to cover the lower part of their face when they came near to people, and they had to actually shout out, unclean, unclean, to warn people uh, and protect others from being polluted. They had to wear torn clothes. And they couldn't even live within the walls of their city. They could not enter into the city of Jerusalem, and they could not enter into the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. The priests would have to examine them and then pronounce them as very clean or not. And so if you had leprosy, you were effectively excluded from all social and religious life, and you were looked upon as a kind of walking dead person. For those of you who are into it, like a zombie. I know one of you were going there in your head. All of this is to say, people who had leprosy were the most ostracized in all of Israel. Having leprosy was more than just a physical infirmity. Lepers lived isolated from the rest of society, alone, rejected. They lived in practical separation from God and others. They lived in shame, and they lived in sadness. And they were stuck there until their skin disease cleared up. Their sickness then was all-encompassing. This man wasn't just sick. His sickness separated him from all that made life meaningful. He wasn't fully living. Now, all of that is at work as this man comes before Jesus and kneels before him and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And this word, that we, this Greek word for knelt before in verse 2, it's the same verb in, as the word worship that Jesus uses in Matthew 4, verse 10, where he's tempted by Satan. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's that same Greek verb. This man is kneeling before Jesus with adoration, with reverence, with honor, he understands who Jesus is. He's heard Jesus' sermon, and he's heard what Jesus has already been doing. And his request tells us three things. He says, Lord. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord. He makes himself a subject of Jesus. He doesn't say teacher. He says, Lord. Curious. He's king. He recognizes who Jesus is as leader. And he says, if you're willing. He recognizes that Jesus has his own will. He doesn't come with a demand he respects Jesus as well. He doesn't say, if you pray even to your father, he says, no. If you're willing, it hinges on you, Jesus. You have that kind of authority. You can make me clean. He believes that Jesus has the capacity to heal him. You can, you can, if you want, you can cleanse me now. And these words are a bold declaration of trust in who Jesus is. You have that power. You can heal me now. And yet I wouldn't focus on the order of what he says of this, as if it were some kind of formula. That's not the point. The point isn't what this man says. The point is who he is talking to. 
who he is approaching, who he is asking to help him. In other words, who are you running to for help? Where are you running to? We all run somewhere when we're tired, when we're grieved, when we're exhausted, when we're anxious, when we're angry, when we're bored. What is that place? Who is that person? What's that thing? See, faith that honors God is trust that Jesus, the Son of God, has the ability to handle our greatest issues, our greatest failures, our greatest pains, our greatest problems. And the way that faith expresses itself is with actions. He comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus. Jesus is worthy of our trust through our greatest and in our greatest and deepest issues. And as I was thinking about this uh, idea of him being worthy and him being able to help us, it reminded me of a song that um, if you have been at Cascades for a while, you'll know. It's called He is Able, More Than Able. He is able, more than able to accomplish what concerns me today. He is able, more than able to handle anything that comes my way. He is able, more than able to do much more than I could ever dream. He is able, more than able to make me what he wants me to be. Sounds a lot nicer in the melody. I'm not going to sing for you, though. Sorry. Will you approach him? Will you come to him? Because the way that Jesus responds to this man should put to doubt, uh, should remove the doubt, this idea that our sickness, our grief, our shame, our troubles are too great for him. The unclean man asks, will you cleanse me? If you want to, you can do it. And then in verse 3, we're told Jesus reaches out to him, touches him, grabs hold of him, and says, I'm willing, I want to be clean. Jesus reaches out to this man and touches him. The man is unclean, and touching him should make Jesus unclean. And yet Jesus doesn't hesitate. Jesus doesn't take a few steps back. He doesn't bat an eye. He reaches out and touches him. In the Bible, when other people are healed of leprosy, the person involved in the healing never does any touching. The two probably most famous examples would be Moses with Miriam and Elijah with Naaman. Moses prays, he intercedes on behalf of Miriam, his sister, asking God to heal her, but he never touches her. Elisha doesn't even meet Naaman. He sends his servant to go and talk to Naaman, and the servant just tells him to go dip in this river seven times. Never touches him. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because Moses touching Miriam would have made him unclean. Elisha touching Naaman would have made him unclean. Unlike Moses and unlike Elisha, unlike all of the people who avoided leprosy on spiritual or physical grounds, Jesus reaches out and touches this sick, unclean man, and he is cleansed. See, the assumption we have is that if the unclean come into contact with Jesus, he will become unclean. And I want to use an illustration to give us a bit of that example. So bear with me. What do you guys think of this nice little Ikea little <laughs> kitchen cutting block? There's a couple who recognizes it because it used to be in their kitchen.
So we got these three cups here. We can ignore this one for now. This here is the people we think of who are unclean. And we get, become unclean through a variety of different things. Sin, different things that we carry, things that we feel as if very few can address, very few can carry, very few can have it resolved. And so as each of these different things come up, all the different sin or whatever it may be that comes up, we feel like we are unclean. And one of the assumptions for everyone in the Old Testament, the first century, was like, hey, um, if I go to someone else, I'm going to make them unclean. And so there's this idea that, oh, if I come into contact with Jesus, just a tiny bit of contact, oh, Jesus is unclean now too. But that's not the gospel. That is not the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't become unclean when he comes into contact with us. It actually works the opposite way. You see, when Jesus comes into contact with us, all of the different uh, things in our life, the sin, the shame, even sadness, even sickness, Jesus can resolve. He can cleanse us, and that's what he does in this man's case. And so when Jesus touches this man, his life is cleansed. He's completely changed. And this is the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus, he doesn't, take, he doesn't actually become unclean. He actually makes us clean just by coming into contact with us. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's kind of cheesy and fair, fair. With kids at camp, they think it's pretty cool. It's a nice science experiment, okay? Just let your childness come out in this moment, okay, and embrace it. See, Jesus reaches out and touches the man, and immediately he's cleansed. Why doesn't Jesus become unclean? It's, because, it's not just because Jesus is clean or pure, holy. It's because he is the source of all purity, the source of all holiness the source of all light. And maybe you're wondering, well, if there's the law that says you cannot, you know, you shouldn't be coming into contact with someone who has leprosy and they need to stay away, then isn't Jesus breaking the Old Testament law? He's not contradicting it, though. He's fulfilling the law's intention, which were intentions of health. And by healing this man, he does that. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And when he reaches out and touches this man, he fulfills it by restoring him to health. And can you imagine what that must have been like for this guy? You live your life and nobody wants to touch you. People see you from afar. They can see your clothes are all ripped up. You've got to warn them and tell them that you're unclean, unclean. You're basically just pronouncing it all the time that, that you live in this state. No one wants to touch you. No one wants to be near you. No one wants to interact with you. How many people must have resisted helping him when he asked for help? How many priests would have hesitated to examine him? How many would have yelled at him to say, get away from me. Don't touch me. And then he comes and kneels before Jesus. And he asks Jesus to cleanse him. And Jesus does not reject him. He doesn't take a step back. Jesus doesn't just speak saying, be clean. He touches him first. I want you to be clean. 
And the order is significant because it tells you who he is. It tells you about his character, about his nature. That when he comes into contact with unclean people and they ask him to cleanse them, he doesn't become unclean. He removes their uncleanliness and he makes them clean. He restores them. The gospel is in that grasp, is what one scholar says, when Jesus reaches out and touches that man. Why? Because the one who was unclean, who was impure, the excluded, the untouchable, when touched by Jesus, is permanently changed. His whole life is changed. The touch of Jesus means acceptance. It means healing, forgiveness. It means cleansing. It means restoration. Frederick Dale Bruner says, Few acts would affect the shun leper like this man's touching him. And in that touch, we have God's identifying love. It is the gospel that God, through his Son, Jesus, touches us, enters even physically into our lives, and makes us his. And this is what I mean when I say that the healing that Jesus brings is comprehensive, it's holistic. When Jesus touches and heals this man, Jesus is doing at least four things in this man's life that we can draw out. One, he restores his relationship with God. Because he's clean, he can actually enter into the temple to worship now in Jerusalem. But more importantly, because Jesus himself enables this man to actually know the Father, Jesus enables this man to fully realize the kind of relationship that God intended for all of humanity to have with him. Jesus restores this man to community. He can actually live within the walls of the city. Cities back then had walls because they provided protection. If you lived on the outside of the city walls, you didn't get that protection. This man is able to actually live in community. He can live life normally. Third, Jesus removes the source of his sadness and shame. His shame was his leprosy. He could not, it was part of his identity. He couldn't go anywhere without being seen as a leper, as one who should not be interacted with or spoken to, and it was a source of his sadness. And yet it's gone now when Jesus says, I will be clean. It's replaced with joy and the testimony of what Jesus has done for him. And fourth, Jesus shows that his this man's physical health and body matter to him. See, the body is not a problem. There isn't this great divide between the physical and the spiritual, the body bad, the spiritual good. Jesus doesn't see it like that because he didn't create the world in that way. Sin and evil have marred what he created and what he intended for, and so he has come to fix and restore, not simply fixing the spiritual and ignoring the physical. He's rescuing and restoring both physical and spiritual. And one of the reasons why we need to know this is because we're more like the leper than we realize. All of us have a kind of leprosy of the heart. Donald Hagner, he writes, there's a sense in which leprosy is an archetypal fruit of the original fall of humanity. It leaves its victim in a most pitiable state, ostracized, helpless, despairing. It's the, most, it's the ultimate purpose of Jesus to heal every malady without exception. 
See, one of the things that you can even experience when you read through the Sermon on the Mount is this kind of a sense of dis disappointment and sadness, a sense of even shame. Because you read and you hear and you're like, I have no idea how I live into that kind of vision. I don't know how I live into that. What do you mean reconcile with those whom, you know, uh, have wronged me or that I have wronged? What do you mean praying for my enemies? That when someone wants to steal this from me, I give them more. What do you mean living completely honestly? What do you mean not treasuring the things on earth but only storing up treasures in heaven? I, I don't know if I can do that. I, don't, I already feel like I'm not living into that. And there's this level of uh, shame that we can feel. And St. Augustine, he actually talked about that, that, that there's, this, there's this that level where many of us can relate to this person on that uh, in that way when we think of the shame that this leper would have experienced. But see, leprosy of the heart is what we would call sin. Sin makes us unclean. Sin slowly kills, it numbs us to what is wrong, and it wreaks all kinds of havoc and ultimately leaves you helpless, isolated from God and from others. Its effects are spiritual, yes, and physical. And Jesus has come to address that to heal us, to restore us. The salvation that Jesus has come to bring is more than spiritual, though it, isn't, it's, it is spiritual, but it's more than that. Sometimes we think God only cares about the soul and not the body, but he cares about it all. Justo Gonzalez, he notes that this word that is used in salvation in the Bible is rich with several meanings in Hebrew and Greek, depending on the context, and no one English word fully captures it. And so, New Testament scholars have to discern based on the context whether to use the word salvation or healing. They're the same word in Greek. And Houston notes that this word refers not only to what we today understand as salvation, but may also refer to the restoration of health, to liberation from an enemy or a threat, and to the reclaiming of what properly belongs to God. See, we need to hear this because Jesus still saves. He still heals today. He still cleanses. He still restores. And he wants to do that in you, in me. The salvation that Jesus bring is, brings is one that cleanses and sets us free from our defining illness as human beings. The salvation that Jesus brings is one that reclaims us as people created for a purpose, to image God to the world, God's love for him and love for others. The salvation that Jesus brings is one that begins to heal our deep self-inflicted wounds and wounds others have inflicted on you. It's the healing that Jesus brings to broken relationships with God, with others, and ourselves. He's come to address all of the brokenness, all of the sickness, spiritual and physical and emotional. And it's why when the kingdom of heaven comes in fullness, we're told in Revelation 21 that Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Healing and restoration are part of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's also why Matthew, a few verses after this passage in Matthew 8, verse 17, says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities. He bore our diseases. How? 
How would Jesus make this comprehensive healing possible? The way Jesus ultimately deals with our physical and spiritual sickness is through the cross. When Jesus is nailed and hung on that horrible cross, something remarkable happens in the unseen realms. Peter, an eyewitness, one of his first disciples, who initially doesn't understand it and couldn't understand it, would make sense of it only once he saw the resurrected Christ. And as he led the early church, he writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Jesus took on himself your sin, your rebellion, your evil, mind, the sickness upon himself. On the cross, Jesus was sucking the poison out of sin and death out of our hearts. He was taking away your shame. He was defanging the forces of evil. He was absorbing it within himself and taking it to the grave. And yet his bodily resurrection declares that he left it there. And so one of the things we respond to here is what Matthew is going to do from, verses, from chapters 8 through 10 is you're going to see a series of miracles, nine. And after each three, you're going to see this call to follow Jesus. Miracle, healing, healing, follow me. You're going to see it again and again. There's this call to follow Jesus. He doesn't just announce the kingdom, show you what it's like. He begins to bring it into your lives. But the call over and over and over again is to be a disciple, to be with me, Jesus says, to become like me, to do what I do. It's not just like this understanding. It's actually being lived out. And you'll see in these examples is how much Jesus delights when people put their trust in him when they believe who he says he is, when they call on him for help, when they're willing to follow and sacrifice for him, he honors it. In this passage, I think one of the ways we do respond to this is by putting your trust in Jesus as God, as king, savior, and healer. He's not just a wise teacher or prophet. He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, fully God. Jesus reveals the Father to us. You can't come to the Father. You can't know the Father without Jesus. Jesus is Lord over all, over the cosmos, over your life, and there is no limit to his ability or believe that he really is divine, that he has divine, in his divine nature and his power. And yet that he gets us, that he understands us because he's also fully human. That he can save and heal us because he's God among us. The one who created and sustains all things became one of us. And so when Jesus does these miraculous signs, we need to understand that Jesus knew how to transform diseased skin cells and tissues and turn them into healthy skin cells. Jesus knew how to transform the structure of molecules from water and then turn them into wine. The best wine ever created. It would have been really nice to try that. Could have been our communion wine, right? Jesus knew how to make a heart that had stopped beating for three days start beating again. How to take a decomposing body and reinvigorate it so that blood moved through the body so that the heart that had stopped beating would beat again. And he could do it with a word. Jesus is Lord and he is able. 
And one of the calls for us is to put our trust in him. This is a daily thing. If you identify with a, as a follower of Jesus, we seek to do this every day. It's not just a one-time decision. Secondly, I think we need to commit to being for those on the margins. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that he will lead you to join him in being with those who are on the margins, those who are considered unclean, problematic, who make you feel uncomfortable. And that might come to you as interruptions in your day, as requests for help, maybe even as an attempt just for a conversation. And one of the things that we can think of is like, oh, like, I, don't know. I don't know if I have money to do that. But yet, if you notice Jesus, money was not the primary way that Jesus gave, that he showed. He gave his time. He gave listening ears. He ate with them. He prayed with them. He loved them. He showed them he was for them. He forgave them. They were not projects to be completed. They were people that he was there for. He was available. And this means if you don't have a heart for the marginalized, the excluded, the poor, the sick, if you're not grieved by their state and moved to compassion to want to do something, then you've misunderstood something central to who Jesus is. You failed to see that you were once unclean, that you were once condemned, isolated, and he came to you, reached out to you, and touched you. Third, I think we need to ask him to cleanse, to heal, restore us. See, the man with leprosy knows he's sick and he is not proud. He's not. There's no pretending in him. He desperately needs help. Do not be proud. Ask him to help you. Use the man's words if you feel like you don't know what to say. Lord, if you are willing, you can. Name it. Help me with grief over this recent loss. You can heal my illness, my cancer, my concussion, my leg injury. You can heal my mother's illness. And this isn't to say that God does not work through medical professionals. He does. It doesn't have to be this exclusive thing. But you can come to him and ask him to help. You can help me forgive my boss, my ex, my neighbor. You can forgive me, Lord. You can heal my relationship with my spouse, with my dad, my mom, my children. What is it? Whatever it is, bring it before him. And the way that the words are ordered in the Greek, it seems to emphasize this man's leprosy, suggesting that Matthew is asking the listeners of his gospel, so what is your problem? Bring it to Jesus. The healing, the cleansing, the restoration that we long for is found in Jesus Christ. Come to him and ask him. And fourth, surrender the outcome to him. We have to hold our requests in this sacred tenderness and openness to the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. Our will is not always his. And Jesus will teach us to pray to our Heavenly Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus doesn't just teach us to do this. He will do this in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, look, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done. He doesn't just call us to do it and never have to do it himself. He lives it himself. And he goes to the cross. 
because he wants to do the Father's will. And herein lies the tension with following Jesus. To say that Jesus comes to heal, cleanse, and restore does not say that he will take away all of the pain in our life right away. Jesus never promises us a life without suffering. Jesus himself stepped into the weight of suffering. He lived it. And the disciples of Jesus, though, they discovered the divine power of God in this place of suffering and weakness. And the apostle Paul, he experienced something so challenging that he called it this thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan, he said, to torment me. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. They didn't give up after the first time. He kept asking. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is why, for Christ's sake, Paul says in verse 10, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned that in his weakness, he can live in the power of God. He can experience the grace of God in that place. See, true, honest faith doesn't know if God intends to heal in this moment in the way that we asked, but it trusts that his will is ultimately good, perfect, and pleasing. And sometimes healing is immediate, like in the case of this man that we read about. Other times it takes days, weeks, months, years. And that might be because he wants to grow us in our trust of him, because he wants us to see it's not a formula that you just come and say, and then you receive, but a part of a relationship that he is establishing with you. But his heart is to heal, to restore us through relationship with God, with others, with ourselves, to remove our shame, our sin. And that's available through him when you put your trust in him. And so here's what I'd like to do. I want to open up a space for us to meet with God in prayer, to invite God to come heal or cleanse or restore us. And so there might be, you might, everyone's in a different spot. Some people might be walking through grief right now over loss. Some of us might be actually experiencing shame or actually feel like that. There's sin that just hasn't been resolved in your life, separating you and God. Or, or you've sinned against others, or others have sinned against you and created a wound. You may be living with a physical illness. I want to invite you to bring that to Jesus. And then to live in what we just described, asking him for help. Trusting him with the outcome. Now pray... And then we'll just hold a silent space for the Lord to speak to you, and then we'll take communion together. Spirit of the living God, we invite you to speak, to highlight those areas of our life where we've been walking in, in grief or sadness. Maybe we've been trying to ignore it. Whatever that area is that you want to address with us, 
Would you highlight that now? An area that's hurting or broken that you want to touch and restore. Jesus, we bring you these things, our disappointment. We bring your sense of loneliness, our hurt. We bring you our shame. We confess our sin to you, Lord Jesus. We confess how even in those places of sadness, of anxiety, and all these things, we've actually not run to you, but many times we've run to other things to distract us. Lord Jesus, we know you are willing to cleanse. So we ask you to cleanse us of our sin. We ask that you would restore our broken hearts. you'd pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That your Spirit would enter into those wounds in our life and fill them with your love. The places where we felt so lonely and discouraged, that you'd help us to see that you are with us. You can heal, you can restore. And so we come to you, Lord Jesus, the author of life, healer, forgiver, restorer, king. And do as you please in our lives, we ask, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. Amen. We are going to take communion. So I've got to step up.